Father, I just pray that you would give every person in this room ears to hear, eyes to see, to see you as an awesome and amazing God, to see you as graceful and kind and compassionate, to see you as sovereign, to see you as providential, to see you as just. I pray, Father, that we would have eyes to see you as you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Father, I would ask if there is anyone here tonight that does not know you, that tonight would be their night of salvation. Let them know your grace. Let them know your mercy. Let them know your compassion through the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Amen. And you may be seated. So tonight, I just want to prepare you ahead of time. We're going to be tackling a subject that is very, very difficult to tackle. And in fact, it is a subject that most of the time is just simply avoided. And I'm going to go to a theologian named Martin Lloyd-Jones to assist me in an introduction to this. And this is what he says on the subject of hardening. He says, the doctrine of hardening is one of, if not the most difficult doctrine we must approach. So I just want to read that sentence again because I want you guys to know what you're in for tonight. It says this, the doctrine of hardening is one of, if not the most difficult doctrine we must approach. And then he gives this advice. We should approach this doctrine with humility. We should approach this doctrine with fear and trembling. We would never know of the reality of hardening if it was not revealed to us in Scripture. And so what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying here, and there's more to the quote, but I just want to kind of explain it as we go. What he is saying here is that hardening is not an observable reality. We actually, as human beings, are not able to look at somebody's heart and know if that heart is hardened or know if they have a heart of flesh, or another way to say it, to know if they are saved or unsaved. We do not have the ability to look and see. And we would also not be able to know, in and of ourselves, what it means to be hardened and what the consequences of hardening actually are. And so with that, with the Word of God, we're actually able to know something about a real subject, a reality that is happening in men and women's lives that we would not be privy to without the Word of God. He goes on to say this, There are those who dislike this doctrine and neglect it and simply don't teach it. Then there are others who are almost proud of this doctrine and use it in uncharitable ways. Again, wanting to avoid both of those things. We do not want to use this doctrine in an uncharitable or an unloving way. And we also do not want to neglect this doctrine or push it to the side because it is a difficult thing to discuss. And then he says this. This doctrine is given to us, and then he gives a few pointers of why God has given us this doctrine. This doctrine is given to us to help us understand the depth of the hopelessness of our condition outside of Christ. So I want to pause there. If there is a goal here tonight, I want everyone to understand when they leave here tonight the condition of the person that is outside of Christ and the hopelessness of that condition without the work of Jesus Christ. Secondarily, he says this, the dangers and severity of hardening our hearts further. 
That is, everyone outside of Christ has a hard heart. But there are actions that we can take. There are mindsets that we can have that will harden our hearts even more severely than what they already are. A third thing that he gives us, that the only solution for this condition is the grace of God. That is, no one can work their way out of this problem. It is not within man to resolve or solve this issue that we have called a hard heart. To also understand that God's grace and patience has an end. That God's grace and patience has an end, which is a very difficult thing for us to come to grips with. Because when we think about God, we want to believe that His grace is forever, His patience is forever. We can just do as we please, and when we feel like it, we can turn to Him whenever we want. And so often people say things like this, when I get a little older, I'll give my life to Christ. When I go and do what I want to do, when I've lived, and unfortunately they've believed a lie. And that lie is, is that they believe to follow Christ is not to truly live. When the Word of God teaches us that to live is Christ. To live is to know Him and walk according to His Word. And then lastly, that God is sovereign or ultimate over all things. And yet, in light of Him being ultimate or sovereign over all things, we are responsible for our actions. I'm sure just in this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, most of us are already overwhelmed, which is why I'm going to spend two weeks on this subject because I want to make sure we get the fullness of it because even though it is so often avoided, it is a very important doctrine for us to wrestle with as Christians. And so with that said, let us now return to Romans chapter 11 and let us start in verse 7. And it says this, What then? Has Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The first thing that I want to talk about is, what is it that Israel was seeking? Because we see here in verse 7 that it says, this idea that has Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The reality is, Israel as a nation did fail to find what they were seeking. And you might be asking yourself, well, what was it that they were seeking? If you would turn back with me to Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 30, it gives us the answer to what it was that Israel was seeking. And this is what the word of the Lord says in verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And so there is a righteousness that is by faith. Faith in the work of Jesus Christ. That is not what Israel was seeking after. But God revealed this gospel or gave this gospel to the Gentiles and they received it by faith. And then he goes on to say this. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And now I want us to skip down to verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is Israel, is that they would be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. There's something that I want us to draw out of this that is very important. We live in a society, we live in a culture where people tell us, as long as people are sincere, 
as long as they are religious, as long as they are seeking a God, in the end, they're going to be okay. That is not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches us that even sincere, zealous, religious people that are not searching and seeking to be saved by faith in the works of Jesus Christ, but instead are trying to be in right standing with God by their own works, are lost. Regardless of their sincerity, regardless of their zeal, regardless of their commitment, there is only one means of salvation, and it is through the work of Jesus Christ, and Israel missed it. They wanted to attain righteousness by their own efforts. They didn't want to receive the grace of God to glorify God. They wanted to work for it so that they could be glorified, that they would be made great. And in having that heart condition, they missed when Jesus showed up because of a heart condition that they had known as a hardness of heart. There are zealous religious people that believe in a God that have a hard heart. And that is important for us to understand, specifically in our culture today. Now, verse 8 is where we're going to spend a lot of time and attention here this evening. So I'm actually going to do verse 9, and then we will go into verse 8. And in verse 9 it says this, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The first thing that we need to discuss is what is a table in this context? When we think about the idea that the Israelites or the nation of Israel had a table, what does that signify? Because this table that they had does not seem to be a benefit to them. But instead, this table that was before them became a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution or a consequence for their actions. See, the table of Israel was the blessings that came from the obedience to the Word of God. That is, as we see in Romans chapter 9, again, if you would flip over there with me, to Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 5, Actually, we'll start in verse 4. We see this table. We see the idea of what it is that Israel had. And this is what the word says. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It seems as if what they had was advantageous. They literally had the Word of God. They had the Word of God in front of them. And not just on paper, but they also had it being lived out. And yet, because of what they actually wanted in their hearts, they were blind even to all of these flashing lights in front of their face, showing them what was the means of salvation, which, by the way, has always been by faith. It has never been by works. There has never been a time in human history that anyone has ever been saved by works. And if it was the case, then salvation would not be by grace. 
which is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 11 and verses 5 and 6. He's establishing to his Jewish readers, guys, your salvation was never by works. It was always by faith. And he has literally spent 11 chapters explaining to them their condition and their inability to be saved in and of themselves. And yet, for some reason, We still, as human beings, have a default setting to want to be made right with God by our own actions, as opposed to being infinitely grateful for His great grace extended to us, namely in the work of Jesus Christ. See, the table had this kind of idea to it, that it was a place of protection, that it was a place of nourishment, that it was a feasting, A place to go and feast and dine and delight. And some of those things for us culturally we understand. But the reality is this. Obedience to the word of God is these very things. It is protection. It is nourishment. It is feasting. And yet, nothing in us naturally wants to go to it to delight. It is so interesting to me that we honestly believe as a default setting that God in his word is a hindrance to our joy. Isn't that interesting? That we as people naturally believe the creator of the universe and the loving gift of his word is a hindrance to us living life to its fullest when in reality Jesus has told us over and over and over again in the word of God that joy is found walking in accordance to these truths. And yet Israel missed it. They missed it. And they were instead pursuing salvation by works. See, their unbelief in the Messiah, specifically Christ being the Messiah, led to the Word of God being a judgment instead of a justification. And for everyone on this planet, the Word of God will either be a judgment to them or a justification. That is that our hope is found in what the Word of God tells us has been done for us in the work of Jesus Christ. As you sit here tonight, in the seat you are in, is the word of God a judgment or a justification? Have you received by grace, through faith, the great gift of the work of Jesus Christ for salvation? Or have you rejected that and had the word of God become a judgment on you in your life? This table, the word of God, was given to give people sight But instead, it brought blindness. It brought blindness because of their hard hearts. They were rejecting the very things that were in front of them that had the power to save. It was a stumbling block to them instead of a strength. The Word of God was given to Israel, and it's given to us as well, to be a strength in our life, not something to stumble over. Not something that does damage to us, but instead brings us life. And yet there's something in us that makes us want to believe that just simply is not the case. And for so many, when they open up this Bible, they feel that they are enslaved instead of free. God has given us His Word that we would be free, and free indeed. He does not give us His Word that we would be slaves to misery and unhappiness and purposelessness. That's not why He gives us the Word of God. 
He gives us the word of God that we would be free through the work of Jesus Christ. And yet Israel, with all of these blessings, kind of like the blessings we have today, had all of these things as a table laid out in front of them, and yet they rejected them. In Psalm 78, if you would turn over there with me, we see a picture of this very issue that we're talking about, starting in verse 17 of Psalm 78. And this is what the word of the Lord says in Psalm 78, starting in verse 17. Now, as we're going through this, keep in mind, we have an issue that's at play here, and that is that we have a hard heart, a heart that has been hardened. Verse 17 says this, Yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. This is, again, talking about Israel in the wilderness, It says they were rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread or provide meat for His people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, He was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. And here's the reason. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His saving power. It is offensive to the God of the universe to look at Him and say, you can't. To look at Him and say, you're not sovereign. You're not in control. You can't meet my needs. You definitely can't give us joy. Or as the children of Israel were saying in this context, you can't take care of us in the wilderness because we have needs that we don't believe that God will meet. And this is the problem of the hardened heart. Israel had the issue, and we had the issue as well. In Romans chapter 11, we see this statement that David says coming out of Psalm 69. And something that I thought would be helpful for you is to give you some other references in the Word of God where they use Psalm 69 to talk about that Christ was not just going to come and be a king, even though someday He will reign as king. He will reign as king on this planet for real someday. But He also came to do something else first. And that was die. That was to be a suffering Savior. To give both Jew and Gentile hope. And it was through the work of Jesus Christ. It was through the Messiah that would come. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 24, Jesus tells them this as He is walking with them. In Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 25, it says this, In Luke 24, starting in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Why did he do that? Because he wanted them to see. He wanted them to see the hope in the Word of God. He wanted them to see that this was God's plan from the beginning. This was not a backup plan that if people didn't get it right, this is what God was going to do. God knew we weren't going to get it right because God knows all things. 
God did not have a plan B or a plan C. God had one plan, a plan A, and it was called the work of Jesus Christ. That was the plan from the beginning. Before Adam and Eve, that was the plan. Because God chose in His great wisdom and sovereignty that He would bring great glory and honor to His name by saving people by grace. Not by works, but by grace through the work of Jesus Christ. And by the way, we all should rejoice in that. And I wanted you guys to see, and you can do this on your own time, where Psalm 69 is used throughout the Word of God to point to the suffering Savior that was to come and die for His people Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 are also texts as well to check out. If Israel had not been left in their condition of unbelief, they would have not crucified Christ. And by the way, that is not good news for you and I. Because Christ was crucified, you and I can be saved. And that's good news. But I want us to pause and think for a moment as we consider God, as we consider His sovereignty, as we consider His providence, as we consider the awesome bigness of God. So often people struggle with this idea of what about men's free will? And I want to pause. Men do have a will. But I also want us to imagine a world where God was sitting back, chewing on His fingernails, hoping that man would follow through on the plan that He had designed. Hoping that man would get it right that they would crucify Christ, that they would make the decision to do that so that you and I can be saved. And if that doesn't happen, well, we'll just have to come up with something on the fly to find another way to make it happen. No, God made it happen because that was God's will to happen. And that's the kind of God that we are dealing with. A God that does not make us robots and yet providentially in sovereignty sovereignly accomplishes all of his purposes. And you might sit there and think, well, how does that happen? I would like to encourage you to read a text with me. And by the way, it's not going to give you the full answer. In Romans chapter 11, I would like us to start in verse 33. And it says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. I just want to pause and there's something very important to take away from this. You're not God. And because of you not being God, you cannot understand God fully. Because if you were to understand God fully, you would be equal with God. And so you might be wondering, how can God be sovereign and providential? That is in control of all things and man still have a will. Answer, we don't know, but God does because his wisdom is beyond our comprehension. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it tells us that there are secret things of God. That is, there are things at play going on that you and I do not even have the capacity to understand. And that is where we stop and we view and we are actually in awe of God. See, an improper observation of God will lead to a lack of awe of God, and when we do not have an awe of God, we will find ourselves at times to be even more wise than God. That is, we put God on trial, saying, well, God, I think you ought to do things this way. This is how I think you ought to handle it. I think this would be better than what you are doing. And that is nothing more than pride. It is us taking the place of God 
putting God on trial, acting as if we are more wise than our God. It is actually good that there are complexities that we don't understand because that should make us in awe. It is actually a good thing that God is far more wise than we can ever imagine because we are told the fear of the Lord in Proverbs 1-7 is the beginning of knowledge. And it also tells us that fools despise wisdom and instruction. They despise the Word of God, and that's actually foolish. Because if we despise God's wisdom, that means we believe we are more wise than God. And that is why when we get up here behind a pulpit, that what we give to you is this. We don't give you our opinions or our feelings or our thoughts, but we give you the Word of God. And so with that said, I want us to now start to Take the journey into this idea of hardening. Because if we're going to understand everything that's going on in Romans chapter 11, it is important for us to understand this subject. And I do not want to speed through anything. So as we consider Romans chapter 11 and this idea that God, in verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor. That is, God gave this to these people. He gave them eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. And Paul even claims that was the condition of them, that is, the nation of Israel, in his day up to that moment. So let us now dig into this idea of hardening. What does it mean to have a hard heart? And so we're going to be flipping a lot, so I just want to warn you ahead of time. So I'd like with you, for you to turn with me to Ephesians. And we're going to stop in Ephesians chapter 2 first, and then we're going to go over to Ephesians chapter 4. So in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I want us to all understand some important things right out of the gate. For everyone that is outside of Christ, this is their condition. And I want you to read it again. I want you to see this. This is a very, very important thing for us to understand. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Everyone. Dead. What does a dead person do? Nothing. What can a dead person do about their condition? Nothing. Because they're dead. Helpless. Hopeless. Dead in their sins. And then he says this, in which you once walked. And then he said there were two things specifically that those who are in this condition follow. These spiritually dead individuals. They follow the course of this world. They willingly follow the course of this world. They love the world and they reject God. They love their truth and they reject God's. And then even more severe, they follow the prince of the power of the air. By the way, that's Satan. So everyone outside of Christ, this is their condition, spiritually dead, following after the world, following after Satan. This isn't good news. It goes on to say, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and then these very important words, in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Two very important words here. That is, passions and desires. We as people respond, we act, we move, we do based on our desires and passions. The question is, what are your desires and passions flowing out of? Are they flowing out of the flesh or are they flowing out of the spirit? Are they desires that lead to death? Are they passions that lead to death? Or are they desires and passions that lead to life? In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, it says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He says there's a way to walk and a way not to walk. The way not to walk is this, in the futility of your mind. Because it's darkened. Their understanding is darkened, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why is all that taking place? Paul answers that for us. Due to their hardness of heart. Do we see why a hard heart is so severe? This is a huge issue. This is something we must understand. Because if a hard heart is the reason that there are people who are lost, then I need to know what is my role in dealing with a hard heart. He goes on to say this, They have become callous and have given themselves up. If you've ever got calluses on your hands, it's because of doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And as you do the same thing over and over again, your hands will become callous. It is the same way with sin. As you sin over and over and over and over again and reject God, reject God's graces, His goodness, His kindness, His patience, you become callous towards God. As culture begins to tell you, you don't need God. Do your own thing. Live your own way. Everything's fine. That's not something that leads to people having life. That leads to people becoming more and more callous. In Romans chapter 1, it lays something out for us that's very helpful. It talks to us again about the condition of the hardness of heart, but then also gives us things that we can do as people. That we would pray that God would use us to open up eyes and ears to people who are blind and deaf to the truth of the Word of God. To the reality of what it is that Christ has done. And so I want to encourage you in these things because in my humble opinion, based on the Word of God, which by the way transforms it from opinion to fact, I want you to consider our role as Christians in waging war against those who are lost in their hardness of heart, not as their enemy, but for them, because we want them to so desperately, as Paul talked about, to see the truth of the Word of God. And I would encourage you on your own time to go through, again, all of these verses that I have laid out here in front of you. The first thing that we see when someone is willfully participating in the condition of a hardened heart, that is, they're enjoying it, they're doing it, their desires, their passions is to have a hard heart. They sin and suppress the truth and believe and promote lies. Someone who has a hardened heart will progressively sin more, suppress more truth, and believe and promote more and more lies. What do we do 
Do we as Christians just sit back and say, well, this stinks. They all have hardened hearts. There's nothing we can do. Let's throw a pity party and walk away. Absolutely not. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We have been called to have beautiful feet. That is, go into the world and live and proclaim the gospel. How do we do that? Here's an answer. First and foremost, put sin to death in your life. Because you want to show them the power of God. You want them to see that they do not have to be a slave to their sin. They don't have to just settle for death. There's a life found in the victory of Jesus Christ, namely in being able to overcome sin in our lives by putting it to death. We've also been called to believe and promote truth. That is, we believe this and we promote it. We don't just believe some of it. We just don't proclaim what people like. We don't pick and choose the parts of it that we want to proclaim and the parts that we want to hide. No, we proclaim it all. See, again, remember the last few weeks, what have we talked about? God's purpose for Israel as a nation was to shine a light to the culture around them by living in a specific way. That's not change. He wants the church of Jesus Christ to live in a specific way, to be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the Jews, to anyone that we we would be around, to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we put sin to death, and we believe and promote the truth with absolute confidence in the Word of God. A person with a hardened heart, they deny God as creator and do not glorify Him for his beauty seen in all creation, and instead make a habit of worshiping the creation. What do we do as Christians? Answer. We proclaim God as the creator of all things. We're not ashamed of this. We're not ashamed that our God created this planet in six real days. We're not ashamed of that. We're not going to need to be embarrassed of that or walk away from that. We're not embarrassed of what the Word of God has to say. We don't have to make it fit into what our culture wants it to be. We can proudly stand on the Word of God and say, I believe it because God said it, not because people want to receive it. We also strive to glorify Him in all we do and say in a life of worship, that is that we want to live in such a way that it is distinct to the way that the world lives. In every action we take, from our eating and drinking, all the way to our dressing, our proclaiming, the things we engage in, the things that we don't, we want to be set apart. Not as some legalistic, miserable, unhappy people group. Absolutely not. We've been called to live joyous lives. Why? Because we believe that God's way is better. And so when we think about how have we been called to live, it's not some abstract relative thing. We go to the Word of God and say, what does it have to say? And we walk that out. In Romans chapter 1, we also see this, that for those who have a hardened heart, they desire to sin more and more, leading to the approval and promotion of not just their own sin, but others' sin as well. What is our combating of that? We call sin, sin. We call sin, sin. By the way, not popular. You're not going to get cheered. But we have to make a decision as Christians. Do we want to live for the approval of God? Or do we want to live for the approval of men? 
And by the way, the approval of men temporarily feels really good. But unfortunately, it's fleeting. And the pleasures are temporary. Living for the glory of God, that is the praise of God, is not some sort of temporary, piddly pleasure. It's actually an eternal pleasure. And see, this is where faith comes in. See, we as Christians have been called to live in such a way that if God was not real, people should pity us. That is to live in such a way and so distinctly from the world that the things we say specifically about sin and the way that we live specifically in the context of sin identifies us as different because we have a hope. We are different. We used to be dead and now we're alive. We used to have desires and passions that led us to death. And now in Christ, we've been given new passions and new desires that fill us full of life. And God uses that to open up eyes and ears of deaf and blind and hard-hearted people for His glory. See, we are supposed to call sin, sin, and address sin in our brothers' and sisters' lives in kindness and grace and mercy and love and gentleness. Why? Because we love them. See, sometimes we forget that the wages of sin is death. We forget that. Here in a moment, we're going to talk about that just because you call yourself a Christian does not mean that you are impervious to a hardened heart. So this idea of sin is not a playful thing. It's not something we mess around with. It's not something we just say, grace abounds, and praise God it does. But we should never flippantly talk about the grace that costs the life of our Savior. That should be something we treasure, something we honor, something that we're serious about, because that grace being given to us cost us the life of Jesus Christ. But praise God that He rose from the dead. And because of that victory, you and I can be saved. See, out of a hardened heart comes sin. The hardened heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Do not trust those that say, trust your heart. Friend, you can't trust a hard heart because it wants to kill everything. It wants to kill you and it wants to kill everything around you. The world wants to believe they can trust their heart going back to the original issue. That Romans 9 issue. That by doing things my way, I'll be righteous, I'll be happy, I'll be saved, life will be good. If I get to do life my way, that is a lie. From the beginning, Satan wanted Adam and Eve to question God's Word. What was one of the first things out of his mouth? Did God really say? And there has been an attack on the Word of God ever since. See, we need our heart of stone removed and we need a heart of flesh. In Romans chapter 8, it gives us a picture of this. A beautiful picture showing us what the condition was and what it is in Christ. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 6, it tells us this. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. It's death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Period. There's no but following that. That's an absolute. 
You're in the flesh. If you're dead in your sin, you're spiritually dead, you can't please God. You're unable, but there's hope. Verse 12 of chapter 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Why? Because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do we get there? Answer, Romans chapter 10, a page over. Talked about this a few weeks ago. Starting in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. What does that mean? When you stand before God, you will not be put to shame. Because your righteousness is not going to be based on you. By the way, if you stand before Him with your righteousness, you will be put to shame. Because there is only one righteousness that saves. And it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches. By the way, that's good. His riches on all who call on Him. The good news. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You call upon His name, you will be saved. Guaranteed. Without a shadow of a doubt. That is the answer for the hardened heart. I have a paragraph here that we need to work through. And then a final warning. A hardened heart is a condition that both man and Satan contribute to. But God is sovereign or ultimate over it. And by the way, we should praise God for this. Because if it's on you to be saved, you're lost. You have a hard heart. You're dead. You do not desire Him. You have no passion for Him. You do not want to follow Him. You can't. Because of your hardened heart. Nobody on their own decides to follow Jesus because on their own they would not dare. Because they do not love God. They love themselves. And to love God, you must exchange loving yourself for it. Because he tells us in his word, the whole law is wrapped up in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we've been called to do. Not love ourselves, but love God. And in loving God properly, we will love neighbor properly. See, God is sovereign and ultimate over all things. See, man participates in his own hardening by his willful desire to continue on sinning because he delights in sinning. He believes that sinning is superior to submission to and delight in God. All people outside of Christ believe that. It is only by God opening up their eyes, opening up their ears, that anyone can see and hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is why at all times we should be living this out because we have no idea when God's going to do it. 
He doesn't give you a rundown and say, tomorrow, 3 p.m., I'm opening the eyes and ears of so-and-so. I want to live in such a way that when God is up to this, I want to be participating in this. That's what we ought to desire to do as Christians. Satan participates in our hardening by blinding us to the gospel. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4.4, which I have that scripture there. You can turn on your own time. He blinds people. They're unable to see. And by influencing us through temptation to disobey God and not give glory to God for His goodness to mankind. This is going on all around us because we're following the things of this world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan. This is what is naturally taking place in a hardened heart's life. God rescues or leaves someone in this condition ultimately according to his purposes and will. Why do we say that? Because the word of the the Lord tells us this. It's not something a pastor came up with. And this might terrify you. But as we talked about early on, we need to be careful when we enter this subject. But the good news is this. If you're understanding what is being said here tonight, do not harden your heart. Respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Submit to Him here tonight and declare Him as Lord and Savior of your life. Yet, Satan and man always act according to their wills and are responsible for their actions. Everyone, though God is sovereign and providential over all things, are also responsible for all the decisions they make because the decisions they are making are according to their will and their desire and their pleasure. You might say this is confusing. Don't forget what we read in Romans 11. It's beyond our understanding, and yet the Word of God teaches it as true. And one of the big reasons we want to reject this is because we want to understand everything. And if it doesn't fit in a nice little box, we don't want it. Well, God doesn't fit in our nice little boxes. So you have to decide, do you want Him? This is important. God will never harden a heart that was not already willfully hardened towards God in His grace. As we read about Pharaoh in Romans 9, Pharaoh didn't want to serve God. He wasn't excited about submitting to God. He wanted nothing to do with God. So when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he wasn't doing something to Pharaoh that Pharaoh did not desire to do. And in fact, God was giving Pharaoh the ability to probably have the resolve to continue to follow through and push through despite everything that was going on in Egypt. And why did God do that? He did that for the salvation of people. Why did God harden the hearts of the rulers? Herod, Pilate. Why did he harden those men's hearts that they would not see that Christ was the Messiah? Why did he harden Israel's heart that they would not see Christ as their Messiah but instead want a king? Answer for salvation. See, God isn't up there just doing what he does for no purpose. There's a purpose and a plan. And that purpose and plan is the salvation of men and women through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if it bothers you that God hardens hearts, it should also bother you that he softened your heart and saved you. Because you would have never softened your heart on your own. See, when God hardens and softens, it is for salvation. And we should rejoice in these kinds of realities. But as 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we also should come to it with fear and trembling. See, it is only by the grace and mercy of God that someone can be rescued from the condition of a hardened heart. As Paul looked at the nation of Israel in Romans 11, and as we look out to this crowd of people today, it is only by grace that we can be saved. I want to give a warning to the Christians in the room, and then we will finish up. We are told in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, that a Christian can be hardened by sin. I want you to take that very seriously. Because what we immediately want to do is, is bring up something like this. You want to say, well, Jeremy, isn't our salvation secure in Christ? Absolutely. But that should not be a comfort to the one who wants to live as they want. I want you guys to hear that. The perseverance of the saints, the security of our salvation should not be a comfort to the one saying, I do what I want in my Christianity because I let grace abound. Friend, I would not find comfort in that perseverance of salvation for those that are in Christ if that is your attitude. See, we are told in 1 John 2.19 that there are those that will leave. They will leave the church. People that we thought were saved. And why does it say they left? Because they were actually not of us. There are people that for a season are going to appear to be in Christ and then they leave. And why do they leave? Because their hearts were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, proving that they never were saved and never had a heart of flesh. But again, going back to what we said at the very beginning, you and I cannot see one another's hearts. And that is why we must take serious at all times the reality of a hardened heart. So what do we do? How do we avoid this? What do we do to make sure that we are not in Christ, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? I would give you five suggestions to take very serious as we finish up here tonight. One, encourage and be encouraged by the Word of God. We are told in Hebrews 3, 12-14, encourage one another daily. Why? So that none of you would fall into the deceitfulness of sin. And he addresses this to brothers. So brothers, I'm telling you, you need to do this. You need to participate in this. You need to be all about encouragement. You think you can do this on your own? You die. You die. People say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. You will die if you do not go to church as a Christian. Amen. This isn't a game. This isn't something we just do. This is our lives. And we commit ourselves to it. We also see in Psalm 139, we ask God to search our hearts. God, if there's any sin in there that I'm not aware of, if there's anything nasty, deep, dark that I need worked out of my life, God, would you give me eyes to see it because I want it gone. Because I don't want to believe one deceitful lie of sin. Ask God to search your heart. Hide God's word in our hearts. We are told in Psalm 119 that he was hiding the word of God in his heart. Why? That he would not sin. Paul Washer also says the opposite is true. So many don't hide God's word in their hearts, so they feel okay sinning. Spend time daily in God's word because God's word is a two-edged sword. It pierces into our hearts. It shows us what is true and what is a lie. And by the way, even in Christ, there's still a lot of lies in here. And a lot of lies in here. That's why I need the word of God. I need it digging into my heart. 
And then lastly, confess our sin. I would encourage you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 1 as we finish up here tonight. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says this. Actually, I'll start in verse 8. Talking to Christians, by the way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. How do I know he's talking to Christians? Because he's talking about the truth being in you. He says, if you live, act, think, there's no sin in you, you're deceived. Because there is. But there's hope. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say we have not sinned. We make him a liar. And his word is not in us. That's the condition of a hardened heart. His word not being in you. Lost. Tonight, Christian, are you committed to fight any chance of a hardness of your heart? Do not be fooled. Satan wanders around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. This isn't a game to him. He doesn't clock out. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't take time off. Good news. God is sovereign and providential over him. He does nothing to God's saints that he does not have to get permission from God to do. And that's good news. But that does not mean that we're flippant about this battle, about this warfare. Christian, take every day seriously. Take every thought captive. You have a desire to do something? Does the Word of God give me the permission to do it? Jeremy, that's a lot of work. There's a lot on the line. We're talking about eternity. You never save. Do not miss this. You will never be saved by your works but your works show that you are saved. And in light of that, we have been called to live a certain way. Whatever business you need to do with God, if you do not know Him, and you understand what I'm saying here tonight, I plead with you. Submit your life to Jesus Christ. Trust in the work of Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess there is no other way to salvation other than through the work of Jesus Christ. Don't flippantly walk out this door thinking, I I got all the time in the world. Because the more that you sin, the more that you do what you want to do, you will become calloused. And there is no guarantee you'll ever understand this message again. So if you hear it tonight, repent. Cry out for mercy. And if you're a Christian here tonight, would you live to put sin to death? To show the world what a heart of flesh looks like? To show the world what it looks like to treasure God's word and to live in such a way that the world knows there's something different about you? Just want to encourage everybody to just take a minute or so you and the Lord 
And to be honest with you, a lot of times we finish with a song, but I want to do something a little different. This may be awkward for you, and if so, I apologize. But I want to do something a little different. I want you to take your time with God tonight. And when you're done, you're dismissed. You're free to go. But I really encourage you, take the time you need to take to do business with God. I encourage you, if you come to know Christ, would you let somebody know that we can rejoice with you? And then once this place is kind of cleared out, you can feel free to fellowship out there, but please be quiet for those in here doing business with God. And then once things have cleared out, if you want to come back in and sign up for stuff, that's great. But there's something far more serious tonight than signing up for stuff. And that's doing business with God. So I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, you spend time with the Lord. And when you're done tonight, feel free to go. So let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I pray in the quietness of this moment that you would save. I pray that you would move your sons and daughters to live in a way that glorifies and honors your name. I pray that we in Christ would take serious the warning to not let our hearts become hard in the deceitfulness of sin. Father, I've seen so many people buy into the lies of sin and their hearts prove to be hardened. And I pray, Father, that that would not be the case for anyone in this room tonight. Father, we love you. We praise you and thank you for what you will do, what you will continue to do, and what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.